in uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology text that we use for our theology class in chapter 34 on regeneration, that is coming alive spiritually, coming alive to God. He lists uh, some vital signs, five, a couple of external signs and five internal signs, or a couple of internal signs and five external signs that give us a sense for whether a person is alive to God, alive spiritually. Um, in our uh, GCF teaching, I believe it's called Back to the Basics, Meat and Potatoes Christianity. Has anybody read that? I see a bunch of hands and nods. Uh, it lists five vital signs of life. They're about the same as what we teach here uh, at GCF, Grudem's and Greg Weiss's. And, uh, who knows what those vital signs of spiritual life are? Sid. Give us one. Hunger for God's word. Number one. Hunger for God's word. Yeah. Yeah. If, you're not, if you don't have any desire to read the Bible, that's a sign that you're spiritually dead. If you're hungry to read God's word, that's a very good sign. Number two. Or any of the other numbers out of order. Tony. Compassion. Compassion for the lost. Let's add to that, too, uh, desire to share with the lost what God's done in your life. Yeah, word that however you want it. What's another one? Lifestyle changes. John Luke, lifestyle changes. Yeah. That covers up. Yeah, yeah. So lifestyle changes, that covers a lot. Desire to worship, etc some measure of sanctification. And then uh, John Weiss said, adopting a New Testament lifestyle. Can we say specifically desire for Christian community? And then in practice, walking that out by living in Christian community. So you want to fellowship with Christians and you want to do what Christians do together, right? Like New Testament style, which is... Um, Something that we should be looking forward to attaining, not something we should think we've arrived at. But it's something we're working hard towards. What's another one? Sydney, desire for all good things, all the things God has for us, all things godly. So the opposite of that would be what? What? Not desiring. Yeah, Sam, thank you. So, that's brilliant. Yeah, Gene says indifference. So the opposite of that might be worded as wanting to know what I have to do to get into heaven and not being concerned with anything more than that. So, yeah, it's, it's the minimal requirements attitude, but that's not really a sign that you that you're have life in Christ, that you're alive to God. So let's look specifically at number one, hunger for God's word. I'm going to circle it three times because it's my favorite one. <laughs> so if you have these actively at work in your life, if, if these are in you and coming out, other people can see them, and they can get a sense for whether your, uh, the Lord himself has come to live in you and his spirit is fellowshipping with your spirit and has made you a new person and alive to him. Let's look at um, our text this morning, Psalm, the first Psalm. We're going to go through it and read it meditatively and consider its application. And after we read this, we'll go to prayer. If you have a scripture in front of you, um, you might open to Psalm 1. The Psalms were not written in, down in order, they were arranged later. So this psalm was wisely, and I believe under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, placed at the beginning of this book of songs, because that's where it belongs. It's a beginning point. It's, a, it's one that we may all memorize and meditate on and press out into our lives. Like, like squeeze the sweet juice out of it and, and drink it deeply. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this most beautiful song, we ask for your supernatural insight to help us see it and understand it. And then it might become the song of our lives that we might live according to verse 2 and not according to verse 1, that we might not be driven away like refuse, but that we might instead be planted by the stream of the water of life. So Lord, minister to us these holy words that you have spoken long ago through your prophet David. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a beautiful uh, poem beginning with, blessed is the man. You could say that, oh, how happy is this person? Like, this guy is in a good estate. He's, he's well off. He's, he's very, uh, he's on an excellent course in life. He is blessed. The favor of God is upon him. And then it gives three negative descriptors of what he's not like. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. But we've been preaching for weeks that we are wicked and desperately in need of a savior. So this says we're not blessed of God. Far from it. This says blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Here, this word, the wicked, is speaking of those who are consistently wicked, not those who struggle against sin. In the words of biblical commentator John Gill, they indulge themselves in sin, throw off all religion, and cast off the fear and worship of God. This is those of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the, those who persist in all kinds of wickedness, who, who don't reach repentance, who have no good fruit, who, if they maybe have an outward showing of something good like the Pharisees, they are yet inwardly, deeply, and disgustingly wicked. There's something disturbing about their inner life because they remain and persist in sin. This is the Israelites in the wilderness. They were blessed of God. God's favor was, was poured out to them like a, like a river that, that gave them water in the desert. God's grace was given to them like a gift that they never unwrapped. And they, they just cried out for what they used to have back in Egypt. This is the persistently wicked. This is those people who go to church but don't display and live the vital signs of life that we've just looked at. These are those who do not hunger for God's word, even though they might read it. You might know somebody who's, who's read the scripture over and over again or who's memorized large passages of it, but has no regard for Christ, the living word, who spoke these words through the prophets. This is not that that man. Blessed is the man who does not walk 
under the advice of such men. If you, if your circle of friends, if those you read and study are what are called liberal Christians who, who like the Bible and like going to church, um, that's great. Uh, but then in their commentaries, they write, you know, we are trying to figure out who Jesus really was because the Jesus of the Bible is just impossible to believe in. I, I'm not willing to say, I am in desperate need of a Savior. I'm not willing to put myself under the Word of God as it is written and preserved through the ages by the power of God. If men like that are your counselors, if women like that are your friends, if you take their advice and if you're persuaded by the philosophy of this age that says that our reason is elevated, high, and God's word must be evaluated by reasonable people, and if you can't figure it out or make sense of it, well, then it doesn't make sense and it's illogical. That's, a, that's, that's inverted. That should be flipped. So as Christians, we find ourselves when we stumble over things that are hard to receive, hard teachings in the gospel, things that are hard to understand, we invert that evaluation of the word of God. We place ourselves under the authority of the Lord and of his word as, as breathed into thought for thought, word by word, into men of old upon whom the Holy Spirit came and moved and inspired, which means breathed into these words that they might be penned, preserved, and translated for peoples of every language, even us. And this has been done. And here we read these ancient words, once translated from Hebrew straight to English, and still they retain their poetic beauty, these being the words of God. We may not, as Christians, find ourselves persuaded by the logical and persuasive arguments of those who themselves are not under the authority of the word. So when you come up against somebody who says something that makes good sense and contradicts the word of God, the way you fight it, the way you fight that thought, that argument that's set up against the knowledge of God, is by making your delight, your source of life, your source of knowledge, the fear of God and the truths of Scripture. And so you take the Scripture that you know and that you search out, and you put it in its proper place, or rather, you allow, you take your proper place under it. For it remains, and it says that God is true even though every man is a liar, right? So it doesn't matter what we think of his words, they remain the holy and true words of God. So we war against arguments that set themselves up against the knowledge of God, arguments of faithlessness, despairing that God cannot keep his promises, despairing that God is not enough and that I need more, despairing that God's love for me isn't deep enough to reach me at the lowest depths, right? When we experience these, and we all experience these from time to time, if not constantly, if not daily, I should say, um, we fight these thoughts, these temptations, with the word of God and the truths of Scripture. And that we will do as we continue. So we don't have permission. We don't have this blessedness if our counselors are not the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit speaking the scripture to our spirits and our minds. But if your counselor is a philosopher of this age, an idea or a principle, a, a reality that you got from the movies or from your favorite novels or from your favorite philosopher or college professor or your parents, when that stands in contradiction to the word, you're at risk for coming under that teaching and being found outside this blessedness. This blessedness is, is, might be described as joy, even supreme joy. The man who 
does not walk in the counsel, doesn't take the advice, doesn't believe the philosophies of the persistently wicked, who doesn't stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers, King James says, mockers, those who mocked Christ like the Pharisees. The one whose delight is in the law of the Lord is filled with a joy that perseveres in the middle of pain, a joy that, that continues within us, even bubbling up in us, nourishing and feeding and satisfying our thirst when we're troubled. This is our source of life. It's meeting our Heavenly Father in the person of the Holy Spirit through the words spoken eternally and preserved through time and given to us. This is our bread and butter. This is our nourishment. Are we people of the scriptures? Is your life built around reading a lot of news and articles and keeping up with current philosophical ideas and stuff and and taking in lots of media and entertainment without taking in large quantities of scripture, meditating on it day and night? If so, then you might not be experiencing this joy that is promised, the joy that is the destiny of the one who does these things. Let's look down in verse uh, 1, the one who stands in the way of sinners. This is the person who keeps bad company. And Paul says bad company corrupts good morals. We all know it. We've all lived it. We've all either been that bad company to somebody or, uh, or we've uh, surrounded ourselves with bad company because that's what we wanted. And we didn't want the word of God to convict us of sin. We wanted the temporary delights and pleasures of the world. And therefore, we found ourselves having lost our joy. We know what that feels like. And to those growing up in a culture that teaches do what feels right, I would encourage you to become a Christian hedonist and not a worldly hedonist. A hedonist is a pursuer of pleasure. A hedonist is somebody whose philosophy, his theology, whose, whose uh, life worldview is that, um, is that in, from a worldly standpoint, I matter what I think goes and the supreme good in life is for me to feel good. So I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to build my life around feeling good as much as possible, as much of the time as possible. This is an ancient philosophy around since the beginning. Um, Adam uh, might be credited with it. The Greeks popularized it in, uh, in writing, and it's carried on quite well to this day in modern America. It is our philosophy. This is the culture in which we live and under which we have learned partly how to think. These are things that we are finding today we must unlearn if we, would see, if we would grab and seize and take hold of the real joy. If you know a person who is joyful in the midst of their suffering, um, perhaps you've met the Gearhearts, Andy and Peg Gearhart. Uh, if you know Peg well, you know that she lives with severe chronic pain. I don't think she ever has much relief. Andy is, uh, has just recently had a, a painful uh, medical procedure and he's in recovery right now. I got to go visit him this week, and, and he said he had no idea the pain would be this bad. And, and I saw in him a kind of peace, and, and I sort of would have expected some kind of discontent in his eyes, but he was at rest in the middle of his extreme pain, and I marveled at the peace that this couple shares and I know the source of their peace and their confidence. I've heard them tell their life story. I know that they, I know of how they were filled with the Holy Spirit, were saved, and how they lived a life of meditating on the scriptures, of delighting in the scriptures and making the source of their, their way of thinking the Bible, the verses and principles of the Bible. We're all on a trajectory, I hope, to becoming, to be becoming that kind of person, one 
the people who are people of joy in the middle of the conflicts of life, the normal conflicts of normal relationships. If you're married, you know that there's no marriage without conflict. That's a crazy idea. Every marriage has lots of conflict, but the way that couples find joy and work out their conflicts in the middle of some troubling bouts of headbutting as two people try to lay down their own uh, desires or expectations and work together and come to a mutual agreement, um, that's hard. But we see that, uh, that as we grow as couples, there's increasing joy in the middle of, well, I mean, in my marriage, there's, we have lots of things to work out and lots of little conflicts, but we find great joy in the middle of that. The joy that is found by the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on the Bible day and night is a deep joy. We have said before that we powerfully encounter the Holy Spirit in lifelong meditation in the scripture. Do you remember a sermon a few months ago that we uh, delivered here on Joshua chapter 1? Joshua 1.8 describes a person who meditates on the law of God day and night. This is a direct quote from that, isn't it? Do you think David, who I am assuming is the author of this psalm, probably a safe assumption, do you think David had read the book of Joshua? Yeah. He had read it and reread it. He loved it. He loved Deuteronomy. He loved Exodus. He loved the word of God as was written to that point. And now under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes this song of delight in the scriptures, contrasting the lack of joy, the limited joy, the fruitless and ultimately unfulfilling pleasure of the one who walks persistently in the way of the wicked, who sits in the seat of the Pharisees, who, who scoffs at knowledge of God, at at the mysterious uh, gospel that Christ Jesus, that God became a man, a crazy thought, one might say, and many have said through history, the, the awesome thought that God would be punished for the sin of those he made. That's a, that's a strong statement, hard to swallow. Um, hard to swallow both for those who don't want to think of themselves as wicked who don't want to say, uh, Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst, but that is our gospel that we recite ourselves. Those who don't want to say, Christ Jesus took all of my sin, and who aren't willing to go as far as saying, he died my death, and his righteousness is good enough and big enough for me. If you, if you won't go that far with your gospel, then you are missing out on this blessedness. We said once that when the scripture gives two halves of the same coin, it's called a merism or a merismus. When you say day and night, when you meditate on the scripture day and night, it's not saying you meditate from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. and then you meditate from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. It's two halves of the same whole that, that mean all the time. Well, that's kind of an easy one because day is half of the time and night is half of the time. But it's important to understand that that phrase means all the time. If our meditation on the word of God is limited to 15 minutes in the morning and two hours on a Sunday and a little bit on Friday night, then how deep how rich, how full is that blessedness you enjoy? How much of God are you experiencing if the scriptures aren't in your mind and in your mouth and in your heart, as it says somewhere? Maybe you're missing out on some joy. Maybe you're missing out on a lot of joy. Maybe there is comfort to be received in the hardest of times that you're not experiencing, and maybe Christ would come and fellowship with you more thoroughly and deeply and wonderfully. 
come here and meet him in the scriptures. Memorize as many scriptures as you can. Get a list of scriptures you want to memorize and make a schedule and a program. The implication of delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night is that you are investing time in it. It's not just frequent or often. It's not just every day, you know, for five minutes, let's say. It's, and it's not just consistent. It's, it's lifelong. It's both regular on a daily basis, thinking about scriptures throughout the day and as you go to sleep, first thing when you wake up, deliberately making up your mind to bring back to memory and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring to your remembrance all that he's been teaching you. It's also consistent. This is a lifelong thing. The person who experiences this blessedness and joy, like Andy and Peg, have been doing it for many years. But it's also for the beginner. Something else implied here is the volume of scripture you take in, the quantity. Um, when the psalmist says, I delight in the law of the Lord, on his law I meditate day and night. When Jeremiah says, your words were found and I ate them, and they became to me the delight and the joy of my heart. When, uh, when I think it was Ezekiel said he took the scroll and he ate it and it was like honey. When, when uh, the disciple John in the book of Revelation says he received the scroll and he ate it and it was like honey, quoting uh, Ezekiel, I believe. This is the, when the other uh, psalmist, or perhaps in the Proverbs, describes the word of God like the drippings of the honeycomb, it's Psalm 19. Sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. The people who write these things should be our counselors and teachers. And these should be the things on which they, we meditate. But of course, we don't just meditate on verses like, you know, the, your word is like, it's sweeter than drippings of the honeycomb. It's better than finest gold, than like big piles of the finest 99.999% gold. When, when David writes that in Psalm 19, uh, you don't stop there. You have to actually go and do what he did. It's frequently and consistently, day by day and year by year, and voluminously, uh, taking in large quantities of scripture. These people wrote this way because they read a lot of Bible. So if your Bible reading is limited to how my once was, the first time I set out to read the Bible in a year, um, it was about 2012 or so, and I read Genesis and Exodus chapters one, two, and three that year. And, uh, and I realized at the end of the year I hadn't made it. So the next year I set out to read the Bible in a year, I made it through Genesis, and I think I, I, I don't know if I finished all of Exodus. Well, there was probably something wrong with my, my planning there, my, my execution of a good idea. So this takes planning. This isn't something you do after you hear a, a message on Joshua 1.8 or on Psalm 1 or Psalm 19 or, or many places in the scripture that speak of the delights of the word of God and its sweetness, of its taste and its satisfaction to the one who is regularly and often delighting in them. You need to make a plan to take in lots of scripture. Here is a bold statement. Hear it and remember it. If your life is not built around your Bible reading plan, there's something unchristian about your life. There have been those, many of those in history, that haven't had access to the scripture. That is not you. You are lucky, fortunate, blessed, but you're going to have to make a plan to take in what you have available to you. It's like people who have the internet and become experts at playing video games. Well, that was me once too. And with the internet, like if the ancients had had the internet, of course some would have abused it and wasted it, but, but people would, like knowledge would have exploded. And in one generation, everybody would have gone through maybe the whole industrial revolution. Or perhaps they would have made, you know, uh, terrible military technology and blowing each other up. But, 
my point is that we should take advantage of this awesome resource. You don't have just Genesis through Deuteronomy and Joshua and a couple of Psalms and a couple of Proverbs and a little bit of the, you know, the start of the historical books, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, you know, Ruth. You've got the completed rule or canon of Scripture. You have the Word of God in its final form. You've got it. Now you have to eat it. It says in the Psalms, the unfolding of your word gives light. I think about that all the time. On a regular basis, it's, uh, I get up in the morning and I'll go for a walk or go for a jog, usually with one of my favorite brothers, and, and, uh, and we'll read some scripture. And, uh, or, or after they go home and we finish our prayer, prayer jog or prayer walk or sing a little, um, then I'll go inside and read some scripture. And often it's about sunrise when that's happening. And as I'm opening my Bible, I mean, I realize it's not a scroll that's being unrolled like they used to have, but it's still being unfolded. The pages are unfolding. And as the sunlight's coming through my window, and, and it just looks so pretty in the morning, I'm thinking to myself, there's a spiritual and supernatural light coming out of these pages. If you can imagine some maybe movie you've seen where a kid is opening a magical book and light comes out and his eyes grow wide and you know, and there are sparkling sounds in the, coming through the TV. That's what happens when you read your Bible under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit who's come to you today and every day and every night to apply these things to your heart. This is your food. This is your bread. This is your air. This is your water. We need a plan in place to take in large quantities of Scripture because we have the chance to. We are not of those who were behind the Iron Curtain a few decades ago who had a torn-off page or somebody else's memorized passage repeatedly taught in the basement of a, of a house under fear of being broken into. We are not of those who, who don't have good translations of the Scripture from the Hebrew manuscripts, the, the hundreds and hundreds of Greek and thousands of Greek manuscripts. I think there are like... 20-something thousands of pieces and, and whole Greek manuscripts that we've discovered, and we're discovering more all the time. The wonderful thing about the scriptures is that we have about, the, about the, what we read today. If you don't read ancient Hebrew or ancient Greek, there's a, there are short passages in Aramaic. If you don't read these uh, languages in which the scripture were written, no problem. The Holy Spirit helps his church. He has helped those who have translated the scripture. And as we discover even more of these ancient manuscripts of scripture and also uh, other false teachings, what they call the, the pseudo-gospels, right? You know, like the infancy gospel of uh, Thomas, is it? And the gospel of Thomas, the various gospels of Mary Magdalene and Judas and all these things. Like, we have those too. But there are scholars who've carefully sifted these things and compared them with the real words of God. And they are fanciful tales. They don't sound like a real thing. They sound like a magical story for a child. They sound foolish. When we read them, we see, and you can go study these things out on your own if you've been tempted to tempted by the arguments you might have heard that, oh, there are all these other gospels, and why do you believe in your scriptures? Well, we believe in the scriptures that have been carefully preserved by the Holy Spirit, carefully examined and studied. None of this was done in the dark. We should probably have a message on how we got our Bible soon. The one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night is like a tree as, you, as I ask you to imagine this in your mind's eye, don't think of a tree in a forest. Don't think of a tree in a jungle or a rainforest. Think of a desert, because that's what's going on here. This guy is among the wicked, but he's not listening to the counsel of the wicked. There's a spiritual desert around him, and things are hard. He's, there are sinners among whom he walks, but he doesn't keep in step with the sinners, the persistently sinful, those who persist in wickedness and immorality, right? He might fall into their way, as we all do, but then 
having fallen into their path, he's restored by the Lord to repentance. She is brought to confession of sin and re-fellowshipping with the Spirit of God once again. So when you sin, don't stop having your quiet time. Immediately have a quiet time. When you sin greatly in pride and lust and greed and self-centeredness and, and um, you know, disloyalty to your friends and your church or whatever, when you have your greatest sins, that's the best time to go right to a quiet time. It's going to be hard, and you're going to think, I can't, I'm not worthy. You were never worthy, nor were any of the holy men and women of old who came before you, including those who wrote this. Think of, think of David. Did David uh, indulge in pornography? Yeah, he looked down from the roof of his house, and there he saw a beautiful woman, and instead of, instead of having accidentally seen her, Immediately going back inside and sending a courier down and saying, I'd like to build up the walls of your bathtub that you've got there on your roof that I accidentally saw so that I don't see you next time. You know, maybe that would be a righteous response. Instead, he, he, he indulged, right? And then he sent a messenger to get her and bring her, and then, and then he slept with her. Um, was David already married? Yeah. Uh, was she married? Yeah. Um, where was her husband? He was away at war, fighting the battles of their country, of David's country, of which he was king. David wasn't there. Maybe he should have been. And then she got pregnant, and to cover his sin, he, uh, he, tried to, he, he, he sent for him, and he brought him home from the battle, like in the middle of the war. He brought him home and said, all right, go have a night with your wife sleep together. You know, maybe, maybe they'll think it's his child. Maybe I can get away with no evidence. And, uh, and he said, no, I, I refuse. I'm not going to do that. Well, I'm at war. My brothers are at war. So he, I think he slept on his doorstep, right? Well, that didn't work. So he, he sent word to the commander of the army and said, I want you to advance with all of your brave men, including this man, advance up to the wall of the city in range of the archers, raining down their arrows on you. And then I want you to leave him there and the rest, have the rest of you retreat. And what happened? He got shot, and he died. And then David brought the woman into his house, and she became his wife, and, and the child was lost. And David is a man after God's own heart. Have you sinned? Have you fallen greatly? David didn't, though David fell into the path, the road of the wicked. He, he, he stepped into or fell into the way of sinners. The Lord also restored him. And such may be the expectation of all of the just. And that is us. So if you sin greatly, you can be a little bit more humble and a little bit less confident in your ability to stay righteous. You can't. But God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than you ask or imagine, or elsewhere it says, more than we can ask or hope. That's the word of God. Meditate on those passages. Let those truths, those teachings of Scripture, rule over you when your thoughts are just those of despair. Come out of it by coming under the word of God, and immediately upon sinning, Go have a quiet time. David uh, waited, I think, months to confess his sin to Nathan the prophet. And you know how he did it? Nathan came in and hammered him to the wall. And he's like, it was me. <laughs> right? You know, so he, he didn't volunteer that he'd sinned. Okay, we've all experienced that. Well, good news. Um, Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Let that be your mantra. But don't become a Buddhist or a Hindu. <laughs> Let that be your life saying. And as you meditate on this gospel, this good news, this promise of the coming king and his righteousness that was written in seed form and the scriptures already written down by the time Psalm 1 was written, although not yet fully revealed like it has been for us, 
you will be like a tree planted by streams of water. This isn't like a giant Amazon, right? This is a giant Sahara, but it has a river running through it. And here's another river. We think of the Garden of Eden, don't we? The, these rivers with beautiful, fruitful trees. This imagery echoes the beginning of Genesis. It's deliberate. It's saying, you're going to be like a tree in the Garden of Eden. You'll be this living tree bearing fruit for life, remaining rooted and established in God's love, his spiritual nourishment of your soul. Remember, remember in Ezekiel, when it talks about the temple, and this angel is telling Ezekiel, here, go like, we're going we're gonna to measure the temple. And Ezekiel sees this little bit of water trickling out from under the threshold. Well, remember this imagery. The temple is where God meets with his people, right? And Paul, of course, says, you are that temple. So have that thought as we describe Ezekiel's vision. He saw this little bit of water trickling out from under the door, threshold of the door. He went a little farther, and then it was ankle deep. It's like the water multiplied in power and volume and ability to nourish those in the desert and cause things to grow. As Ezekiel's vision continues, he walks farther along the stream coming from that place where God meets with his people. That's, that's where we meet with him in the word, isn't it? He's watering you, isn't he? And Ezekiel walks farther in his vision, and now it's waist deep, right? This is, this is a river. You could be swept away in this. This is, this is bigger than he is. He goes farther, and then it's a river so deep that you can't, like, swim in it. He can't touch the bottom. The water, this river of the water of life, coming from that place where God has come down to meet with his people in glory and comfort, that place in which he has prescribed that offerings be made for, that an offering be made for sin, this place where sin is taken away, where God meets with his people, and we are that temple, is the place from which flows this water of life. It says further in Ezekiel's vision that there are fruit trees growing up on either side of the river. Well, Ezekiel's quoting Psalm 1, isn't he? And the psalmist is quoting the Genesis about the Garden of Eden, isn't he? Fast forward to Revelation. Well, no, let's go to John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, um, people are uh, celebrating the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a celebration of God coming to live among his people, God delivering his people out of Egypt. Uh, people are going out, they're cutting branches uh, off trees, and they're making these little huts or booths, these little tabernacles, and they kind of celebrate the feast by, like, staying in them. You know, you can think of an apple tree, a cherry tree, a, you know, palm tree, and and branches with fruit on them, a house made out of tree with fruit on it. That sounds kind of like the imagery in Psalm 1. As they celebrated that feast, they're, they're celebrating being in a little garden of Eden, aren't they? And there the fruitful trees are supposed to be. Jesus stands up during this feast, on the last day of the feast, the great day, John 7, 37 through 39, and he says, if anyone comes, to, no, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. <laughs> wow. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you think you're going to bear fruit if you're meditating on the scriptures day and night? If they're your delight and the joy of your heart? If, if you're tasting the sweetness of the gospel of God in the scriptures, if it's nourishment of your soul, do you think rivers of living water are going to flow out of your heart? Yeah. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Does he sometimes fall into sin? Does she sometimes get caught or, or get drawn away by the deceitfulness of sin? Yeah, that's the Christian life. We make mistakes. We repent. But our leaf doesn't wither. 
remain rooted and established in these words by frequency and consistency, taking in large volumes of scripture. And let it be your delight, because there you meet God and are nourished. The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Anybody in the Air Force read read this before? When you read, they're like the chaff, the wind drives away is your first thought. Wicked are like chaff, okay. So we've got a military fighter jet here. Somebody shot a radar-guided missile at it. It's releasing a little cloud of um, metallic particles to confuse the radar guidance system, the missile, and then the fighter can get away. Chaff, no? It's not that kind of chaff. This is chaff on grain. Grain is the fruit of the ground. So you have stalks of wheat, let's say, and and the, the fruit of this plant is nourishing and ready to eat. And when you prepare it to eat, you, you, you chop the grass stalks, you take it in a bundle, and you whack it, or you hit it, and, and you knock the seeds out, and you knock the chaff off. The chaff is the husk, right? It's the, it's the little inedible, undigestible, I think, shell on the wheat. And you do it on a hill or a little higher place when the wind's blowing, so that uh, the wind drives it away. If you've seen people preparing rice, if they're trying to take the shell off the rice, they'll put it on a big, uh, a big kind of sieve type plate thing, and they'll toss it and catch it, toss it and catch it, and the chaff comes off. That's that's what's being wasted, right? Um, so the wind blows it away. The wicked get blown away like garbage. That's their destiny. Hmm. Not so the righteous. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is a psalm of delight. Our title today was Delight, Discipline, and Destiny. When we delight in the word of God and we deliberately and forcefully and adamantly exercise discipline and strength to go to the word when you feel and conquer your laziness, conquer your hopelessness or despair or whatever is the normal struggle of every Christian that we are all likewise experiencing. See, we, want, we don't want weak men, we want strong men. We don't want weak women, we want strong women. We exercise strength and we rise up desiring this blessedness, desiring the presence of God in our lives and his blessing upon us and his relating with us and and giving us his thoughts. You're going to have to work hard at this, even though it's a delight. So work hard at regular Bible reading habits. The title of our message is Delight, Discipline, and Destiny. If you are a person who is regularly meeting with the Lord, delighting in the word of God, your destiny is increasing blessedness and joy that will remain with you while you're suffering, while unfair things are happening to you, while awful things are going on, while you're experiencing loss and grief, in pain and shame, this joy, this blessedness, this river of the water of life, this is the Holy Spirit himself. John seven thirty seven through 39 says, this water will well up within you. Verse 39 says, this Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit, who had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So look at the imagery in Genesis of the Garden of Eden and the the river coming into it and dividing to water the whole thirsty earth. Look at the imagery here in Psalm 1 of the streams of water by which the righteous man or woman is planted, whose roots go down deep under the river. Look at the imagery in Ezekiel of this river exploding as the Holy Spirit's poured out into all the earth. The destiny of the church to grow and increasingly enjoy the glory and presence of God until lands are converted to Christ. What we have slowly been seeing unfold 
through these last centuries. Look at the imagery in John 7 of the Holy Spirit. Now here's an interpretation of what that water is. It's the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to go to Revelation chapter 22 because we don't have time, but I encourage you to. Revelation 22 quotes the Garden of Eden imagery of the water and the tree. It quotes Psalm 1. It quotes Ezekiel's vision. It quotes Jesus in John 7. And it brings it all together. And you'll see that the, that the tree of life that grows on either side of the river continually bears fruit. It bears fruit every month. It doesn't just bear fruit in July. It doesn't just bear fruit in September. The Christian, this forest of Christians, delighting in and rooted in the word of God and having our life built around Bible reading and Bible delighting, we continually bear fruit for righteousness, even when we fall into the way of the wicked, the Lord himself will restore you. Have faith and continue to go to the word of God. When you sin, quickly open your Bible. Don't wait a minute. When you have your greatest fall, that's the time to open your Bible. Remain there and drink deeply of the water of life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you have watered us and nourished us in the wilderness. You've caused good fruit to, fruit to grow despite ourselves. Lord, we never would have borne fruit if you hadn't both planted us and watered us and caused us to grow. This isn't our doing, it's your doing. And your words are our spirit and their life. We think of when you were baptized in the Holy Spirit and having the Father speak over you, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We think how the Holy Spirit led you into the wilderness immediately to be tempted by the devil. And as some of us are now in a wilderness, we pray, Lord Jesus, that since you went before us, and experience the temptation of the devil, that you would now show yourself strong on our behalf and teach us to do what you did in that wilderness. We remember that you quoted Deuteronomy three times. The first time, when tempted after 40 days of being famished, we remember that you said to Satan, who tempted you to turn stones into bread, you said, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Therefore, you, Lord, are the bread of life. And these words of yours are our food. We pray that you would make them the delight and the joy of our heart, and that you would make us a people who becomes like a fruitful and well-watered forest together as a community and a Christian culture, enjoying and imbibing and eating these words of life day in and day out. And we pray that you'd bring them to our remembrance day and night. In Jesus' mighty name, for you are able to do all of these things much more than we have asked or can imagine. And we know you will do it. Amen.